Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone, I am here with Francesc Riera. Francesc is an applied machine learning engineer at the Lego Group. Francesc, welcome to the Twomo AI podcast. Thanks, uh, and thanks a lot for having me as well, Sam. I think it's a pleasure. and super excited about uh, the talk tonight as well. Same here, same here. And, and thanks for taking the call at night or being on at night. It's a bit later for you. You're in Denmark? Yeah, that's correct. Denmark, well, as you know, the headquarters for Lego was born in the small town of Pilon here in Denmark. So living just the project. Very nice. Very nice. Why don't we get started by having you share a little bit about your background and how you came to work in machine learning and at Lego? I think it's it's not going to be a very long story, right? Because I've been on the, I guess, on the market for roughly three years now. But I think my my enthusiasm for ML and actually, I should say, my enthusiasm for computer vision started back in my bachelor's in industrial electronics in, in Spain. And that's just because I was studying the, the bachelor's in electronics. And then the last semester was focusing on robotics. And then robotics had an introduction to computer vision. Okay. And I really don't know why, but I thought, this is damn impressive. It's super interesting what you can do, well, in reality with mathematics. And then matrices, right? Mm-hmm. For all the pictures and pixel values and all of these sort of things. And then that drove me to then actually catching up on on a master's in Denmark. So that's when I moved to Denmark to do a full-on master's in computer vision and machine learning in the University of Aalborg, which is here in the north of Denmark. Okay. And after that, well, I guess I become sort of a, an expert in the matter. I hope so, at least. And that got me then, yeah, I, I got a, a small job as a software engineer for a couple of months. It was not my thing. And then I found this splendid opportunity at Lego where I got to actually work with ML on on active products running in the cloud as well. Awesome. Awesome. Well, speaking of industrial robotics and computer vision, one of the early, I think this was early many years ago, demos of AI was like somebody built a Lego sorter using like a treadmill kind of thing and paddle or some kind of robot that would like sort the the Legos into different pieces. Did you ever, have you ever seen that one? It's funny you mention it. Um... We are trying to undig that one from the internet to maybe exploring the, the options also to use it as a, as a product for us. Oh, really? So um, it's, it's quite funny that you actually mentioned it. I think we talked about it two, three weeks ago. So. Oh, that's that's funny. I, yeah. If I remember correctly, I, I remember reading a hacker news thread when this was published. Again, I, I think it was, you know, probably like five years ago or four years ago or something. And there were apparently a bunch of people that would like go on eBay and, you know, buy these gigantic bags of miscellaneous Legos. And they were talking about using, you know, these kinds of devices to sort them and then resell them. Like apparently there's a a bit of a cottage market, so to speak, in remarketing Legos. And it's also one of the the big campaigns, right, that we're also running is... Even though Lego is primarily made of plastic, right? So you want to give your bricks a 
longest life ever, right? And I mean, mm-hmm. if you had some Lego set from the 50s or the 60s, you could still probably use it today. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also what drives this enthusiasm, right? On you being able to, all right, let's try and make this, you know, circular economy in a way, right? For the brick. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I brought that up, not thinking that it was something that you were actually <laughs> thinking about. <laughs> But maybe we can jump into how ML is actually used today at Lego. Yeah, so maybe I can just uh, start uh, presenting slightly my area. So my team going from, I guess, the the bottom to the highest. So I'm I'm part of a team where we are uh, three ML engineers and then full stack and then all of the surroundings, right? And in, in my team, we have two main products, which I can just quickly describe now. We can go into details a bit later if you want as well. Mm-hmm. So the main product that started also now two, two and a half years ago, approximately, it's a, a moderation service. So as you know, Lego is, of course, a brand for aimed at children, right? And children are our main responsibility. So, of course, all of these, for example, social media applications or games or anything where children can upload their content, let's say images, text, videos, anything that can be shared and can be created by them on the phone or on the computer needs to be moderated by law before it's actually available Mm -hmm. or online for other children to see, right? As to avoid the obvious things, right? Yeah. And I mean, we know Facebook does that. We know Instagram does that. A lot of companies do it, but not in the level, I would say, as level as it. And that's because on Facebook, you could post something that is obscene and it's not necessarily going to be deleted as you upload it, but it's going to be deleted after the fact, right. maybe because somebody reported you, right? That cannot happen in our applications mm-hmm. because the damage could already be inflicted and that's not, it's definitely not, you know, the image you want to give to the brand. Um, so yeah, so our product, what it, what it does is receives the content created by the users and we do an initial pre-filtering of this content. So on images, on text, and on videos, we try to reject already what is the most obvious things that should not be in the app. Like if you upload a very bad quality image, if you show your, your face or some sort of identifiable information, you cannot also share that. So we also remove that. Of course, the obvious profanities. Mm-hmm. And we are working also in extending a couple more detectors. And detectors, by detectors, I mean machine learning algorithms, actually. Mm-hmm. So we do this pre-filtering, what gets rejected by us just gets feedback to the user saying, hey, we are very sorry, but uh, your creation is not allowed because of this. Right. Uh, try to take a new picture or try to be nice writing the text. Some, some, some positive reinforcement. If the content is approved by us, it then goes to manual moderation. So there's a company moderating every single piece of content before it gets published. So what we accomplish with our product, right, is... Well, for, there's two things, right? One of them being monetary aspect, because each piece of content that is very obvious does not need to go to a moderator that costs per piece, right? So in that sense, what, that's what we managed to prove. And of course, if let's say, you know, there's, there's like, I don't know, a big fair with Lego and people are asked to upload pictures. Because they are in the fair, it's like, oh, you need to build a car and then you need to post a picture of the car. Mm-hmm. So, of course, they would like to post the picture. But if the picture was bad for some reason, 
it would be nice that they get the feedback instantly rather than having to wait. So when, when right. it goes to manual moderation, there is a time frame of uh, five minutes. I think it's five to 15. I'm not 100% sure because it's not my part. But, uh, okay. The thing is, our service provides a response under 10 seconds for whatever type of content. So if you uploaded something, let's say you take a selfie with your car, it's like, oh, we really like your car, but you cannot have your, your face there. Mm-hmm. So they get the response in seconds, like, oh, yeah, my car is still here. I take another picture. Life's good again, right? Got it. Yeah. And then the second product we have, so after everything has been approved, so when your uh, creation is live on, on the social media app, then we have uh, an automatic job every morning that will take all of the, the creations from the users. And then again, with two sorts of algorithms, so one for image and one for text, we try to identify what is the, the theme, the predominant theme on the creation. So for example, you have a big Star Wars, you are a big Star Wars fan, then you have a lot of Star Wars sets, you take a picture of your Star Wars set, mm-hmm. we probably will identify it as Star Wars, and then what we do is like, okay, this kid has uploaded a Star Wars picture or Star Wars uh, album collection. So what we do is then we send a like with uh, NPCs on the application, and we also use different NPCs to send comments, reinforcing them and encouraging them to keep building, saying, oh, that's a very nice Star Wars creation you have. I would love to see more from you and, and similar like that. And the NPCs are bots or characters? And uh... Yeah, it's, uh, they, they've already existed in the, in the app mm-hmm. and they've been used. So before we set up this environment or this product, it was used by my people. So me as a, I guess, consumer engager person or in the team, okay. I would go in, I would log in as the, let's say, Chihuahua, and then I would comment out on a couple of things. Okay. So now what we're doing is we are automating the job. Of course, there's still some people looking at the comments mm-hmm. and maybe doing more, more specific comments on the scenario. But it's been proven also to actually give a lot of value because we receive a lot of uploads saying, oh, look, Lego Life Emmet liked my comment, I uh, like my post. Yeah. And they are super happy, right? So it's very fulfilling for us as well to see that the reactions are positive, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned yeah. there are there are three ML engineers on, on that team? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's kind of the the broader size or scope of ML and data at Lego? Well, so back in March, we had also a big reorganization where we then founded also what is now the department called the, the data office. Okay. So my team resides within the data office and then the data science products. But from the data science products, for example, we have a couple of others. So of course, in the lego.com page, where you go to the shop, right? and you buy a Star Wars set, we have, of course, a recommended engine saying, yeah. oh, you like the Death Star, maybe you're also interested in the X-Wing. So the recommended team is also, I guess, our sister team working, using data as well and, and developing ML solutions. Mm-hmm. There's also two other product teams, one working, working on marketing effectiveness. So for example, if you have a, a new release of uh, Lego Ninjago on Netflix, how is that performing compared to Barbie or or whatever other cartoon is for, for children at the time? Yeah. And then the last one is demand forecasting. So 
trying to be ahead of the curve, which I guess the team had a lot of fun in Corona. Yeah, it's very approach. difficult now, I imagine. <laughs> <laughs> there was no curve. It was just a peak. And it's like, well, <laughs> we are running, running out of stock everywhere. So yeah. that's it. <laughs> yeah. And then we, of course, have an incubation team as well. So the incubation team is trying to analyze different areas, sectors, and departments at Lego where automation could be beneficial, for example, using machine learning. And one of the examples is this uh, brick sorter using a treadmill. Well, it's a bit more yeah. <laughs> high scale. <laughs> but that's the idea, right? Nice, nice. You mentioned the, the moderation app. Reminds me of a recent interview that we published with someone who works in cybersecurity. And, you know, in that environment, as you can imagine, it's kind of very adversarial. You, you know, plug one hole, someone's trying to, to poke another. It, moderation in your environment, is it, you know, quite the case that there are bad actors as opposed to like, are you, is the task primarily identifying passive behavior that you don't want? Or are there bad actors, so to speak, that are trying to abuse the system? I think there's a, there's a bit of both, actually. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, we see the cases where, you know, maybe you had the phone in, in your pocket, right? And accidentally you took a picture. I mean, it happens to everybody, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and then you post a picture <laughs> yeah. by mistake. And, and that happens quite often. Sometimes we also actually caught some bugs in the app because it's like, well, is it not that we're getting a thousand black images or full white images, you know? Yeah. No, it should not make any sense. It's like, okay, well, maybe you should look into <laughs> into the latest police <laughs> you, you made. So that was a funny, funny fact. But also, and that's maybe a bit above where the product, our product goes, or the moderation product, mm -hmm. and that's more on the, on the manual moderation because they do track behaviors and bad actors. Okay. And as far as I know, I think there's been a couple of cases where Somebody got banned, they opened more accounts, they keep doing the same, got banned again. So there's a little bit of that. I, I was curious if that was a uh, something that you had to deal with, how that played into the way you approach the model development, but it sounds like that that's kind of downstream of what you're doing. It is because it is, again, we, we are not Facebook or Instagram, right? We need to make sure nothing bad gets published. Right. So that's why there's the extra layers of security here. Do you incorporate the input of the human moderators? Like, is it a kind of a human in a loop type of situation where you're using their judgments to evolve your models? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and that's uh, something we started doing, I think, at the beginning of this year, maybe the end of uh, last year. Mm -hmm. You know, with uh, with the Corona year, everything is a bit distorted for for me in the calendar. But um, <laughs> what we managed to link was this external moderation company. So when they reject an image or a text or a video, mm -hmm. we get the feedback that saying, "Okay, this content was rejected because of this." What we did is we made a, a feature store, and it's a, it, that's a very simple reason for making a feature store rather than just a database. Mm -hmm. It's that. The data by law, so GDPR, it cannot be stored forever. Mm -hmm. Meaning that, uh, let's say you are a you are a user of the social media, and one day you call to consumer service and say, "Hey, I want all my data to be deleted." Right. We we cannot have this link. We're in a way a standalone product, right? So we are not linked to the app. Yeah. 
meaning if you called consumer service, you said, I want my data deleted, your data is deleted, but nobody's going to tell us, hey, right. this user called because, well, first of all, I don't have your user ID, for example. Mm -hmm. So I, it will be impossible for me to track who you are. Yeah. But what we accomplish with this also is we generate features, and the features are generated by well-known machine learning algorithms for images. We are talking ResNet 50 for text samples. We're talking mm -hmm. about multilingual bird, for example. So in that sense, we get the images, text samples. We get the features out of it, which are uh, anonymized because if you have pooling, pooling layers in a, in a neural network, right, you cannot undo a pool. You could, but you would not get a one-to-one -one match, right? Right. Right. So, and then those features are saved and then labeled with the human in the loop. Got it. So rather than saving the original images, you're saving these representations from the these neural nets. And one of the driving reasons behind that is to kind of avoid the GDPR responsibilities if that was personally identifiable data. Yeah. And, and whether it, it is or it is not, if the user calls, and once the data deleted, it needs to be deleted. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, yeah, you are you are breaching the contract. Yeah. I guess that I, I guess that's also within the GDPR. Meaning, if they call whatever the consumer GDPR line is and ask for their data to be deleted, it, these representations get deleted from the feature store. Not the representations okay. because they are anonymized data. So that's fully anonymized data. Right. Right. There is no way to backtrack where, who, and what it comes from. Yeah. Yeah. And so you said that you described that as a rationale for a feature store versus a database, but you can still put those representations in a database. Well, yeah, I guess uh, <laughs> we like to to make a fancy word, so I can just call it a feature store rather than a database. I say that to probe a little bit deeper into that. And are there other you know capabilities that you've built into you know this feature store that are specific to the, the way you're using it for machine learning? Yeah, well, so as I said, right, so the features, which is anonymized data, gets labeled by, by the moderators. In this case, it's, so actually we have labels for the moderation part, but we also have labels for the theme part. Now, um, as, as I said before, so the images that are approved, they are published on the application, right? which I mean are open source, or not open source, but they are open to everybody because they come from a backend that publicly shares the images, right? So then what we do for this, for example, is that those, rather than keeping the features, because that model is a bit more complex, we keep a pointer to where the image is stored in, in the database for the application, and then we reuse that. If the image was deleted by the customer, well, we don't have the image. It's, it's a pity, but it's not there. Mm -hmm. But it, at least it's not our problem anymore. What we do with this feature store, and actually it's something we're currently working on, um, hopefully to be done by the end of the year, it's um, a yeah, so retraining pipeline plus uh, A-B testing uh, framework as well with both, actually. So the idea is checking this feature store every now and then, right? Okay, do we have enough features for retraining the person detector, right? Yeah, we do. All right. Then let, let's retrain. Before we, we launch it live, even though we think the model is better, right? Let's have an A-B testing where both models are running in production at the same time. And then it's up to, of course, us as developers, but also part of the business side of moderation to decide, all right, the new model is better or no, the new model is not better. 
Mm-hmm. With the A-B testing framework, curious how you're kind of packaging and deploying the models? Yeah, so um, so for for model experimentation and model registry, for example, we use the open source version of uh, MLflow, mm-hmm. which is the, I guess, yeah, the package from Databricks. Mm-hmm. We, what we did is we created our own yeah, model store with the MLflow backend. Okay. And then within the model registry, so we have the models in either production or staging or, or, or nothing. And in the core of moderation, uh, the core of moderation is built upon state, a step function in AWS. Okay. So what we have in this step function is, okay, I have the person detector here. And if I have a staging model for the person detector, then the task is a parallel task where the inputs will flow towards both so that I can have a one-to-one analysis to say, okay, which model is performing better in all of the images, right? Okay. And so the, you mentioned step functions. Do you use serverless technologies pretty broadly in deploying ML? Yeah, I think, and that's also one of the biggest changes we did, uh, I think, this year. It's quite a change year, I think. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we are full-on uh, serverless, so everything is deployed with uh, AWS SAM, for example, and then everything is, yeah, step function, Lambda. We have also an ECS Fargate running for the biggest model, mm-hmm. but that's generally it. So, yeah, you could say everything is serverless. So the this biggest model is something that you're kind of deploying and managing in a Kubernetes environment. Is that what you're what you're doing? It's, it's deployed in a well. I guess you could say it's the Kubernetes from AWS, so it's ECS, right? Which is a Fargate test. Oh, for Fargate using Fargate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So rather than having a, a Kubernetes cluster only for one task, right. we decided to go Fargate. Okay. I heard EC EKS and not ECS. Got it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> or I thought that I didn't. I heard ECS. I thought EKS. Anyway, interesting. And so I'm curious how you're. You mentioned it sounds like you're evolving the infrastructure. You've evolved it quite a bit over the past year with COVID year or so. And uh, I'm wondering if you can share kind of what the prior state was, and you know what were some of the the drivers for moving to serverless and container service. Yeah, so, well, the, as I said, so the moderation product started two and a half years ago. And when we started, we thought it would be best if we tried to manage everything ourselves, which meant, all right, <laughs> let's go full on lambdas. And then rather than, you know, having step function logic or things like that, let's go SQSs, SNSs, Dynamos with streams. If I had the, the picture of the old setup, I think, uh, you would be scared, and, and many people maybe listening also would be scared to, to see that image. Um, but then that evolved a bit into, all right, let's go ECS. So let's go full-on Fargate tasks. Mm-hmm. The problem in that scenario is that we, in the moderation setup, because the application is, I was going to say deployed, I guess the moderation exists in 26 markets. We get data constantly, all day, everything. It makes no sense to have a, a Fargate task that is stopped. And then has to be started when new data comes because there's data coming in maybe every two or three seconds, which meant that the Fargate tasks are running 24 hours a day. And then for the Fargate task, which is basically a Docker container, right, uh, mm-hmm. to receive whatever that needs to be moderated, is that we needed to then enable a queue. So then that queue 
would get some data, and then at some point in the thread looping client, you would get the message. I mean, it worked very well. Everything was perfectly fine, and it was not not a big deal. But then we we considered that whenever we get new employees, new colleagues in my team, it's hard to explain the flow. It's hard to explain, or or maybe yeah, try to understand what is happening. Right? And I think it was in December 2020 that uh, AWS Sam came with an update. No, not AWS Sam. Lambda came with an update where you can deploy your custom Docker images to Lambda. Mm -hmm. And that just, uh, yeah, that made our uh, work uh, (laughs) much easier. Life was better that day. Because what we did is, well, we have the Docker images running. Let's just transfer them to Lambda because we know how Lambda works. Lambda is amazing. Mm AWS, not sponsored, I'm going to say now. (laughs) (laughs) But having the Docker containers running in Lambda, then we could also integrate it into the step functions without having to have task tokens, waiting for the callbacks, and a lot of complications, right? And effectively, what this meant and what this means up to today is that today we can deliver responses under 10 seconds when we talk for many images with comments and and everything. Mm -hmm. Whereas before, we were below the minute. So we actually managed to reduce the average times from a minute to 10 seconds, oh, which wow. is quite the accomplishment, I think, as well. And do you run into runtime constraints for using Lambda when you're doing image inference? No, no. And, and that's because, so so what we do, and, and as I said, right, so so the feature store, right, yep. again, and linking back to the feature store, so... The images, they are passed through a ResNet 50 without the classification layer, which is, I think, a very good uh-huh. approach, right? Transfer learning. You've already got the representation and you're just doing classification on the exactly. vector. And, it, and it's funny because there was this the Tesla AI event a couple of weeks ago, uh-huh. maybe a couple of months ago, where they mentioned they are doing classification, image classification with something called Hydra. And what is Hydra? I mean, it's just a ResNet network. Mm-hmm where then you have different heads which classify different things. And I was like, well, this is exactly what we do. Yeah. Why did you think of a cool name like that before? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Interesting, interesting. We've talked quite a bit about the feature store. Can you talk a little bit about how that evolved or any challenges you have run into in bringing that project to fruition? Yeah, so the feature store was, I think it was, one of the biggest problems was from idea to reality, mm-hmm. actually. Because we were like, of course, a feature store makes a lot of sense, right? I mean, if you want our models to improve, you need data. You need labeled data, right? right. And I guess that is um, the suffering of every ML engineer, right? It's <laughs> not about the data. There's plenty of data in the world, it's not, but it's not labeled, right? right? <laughs> That's the problem. So the ideation was there, but we were... It took us quite a period of time to, to try to figure out what's the best approach. How do we do this best? You know, also future thinking. Because it's like, well, I mean, I could just, you know, get all the data from the manual moderation, stack it up in some OneDrive and, you know, let it run there forever, <laughs> which is what a lot of people and a lot of companies do with the data. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid to say. But then we came to the realization, and I think it was also reading some posts on, on other companies, how I think maybe it was Uber, actually, how they did feature stores in Uber. Mm-hmm. So then we came to that, to making a, a feature store client 
everything we do was in Python. So it was in Python as well. And using the backend as AWS because we are full on AWS. But of course, we try to make it also uh, cloud agnostic so that if one day we move to Azure or we move to any other else, then there's not that many problems or it can also be integrated, right? Mm-hmm. And I think one of the learnings also we got in, in the feature store in the first steps is that, all right, I have features. So let's say the feature, right? It's an image that went through ResNet 50. So we go from a couple of megabytes image to seven kilobytes uh, feature array, right? Yeah. And I know it because I've seen many of them. So I know it's seven kilobytes. <laughs> <laughs> we thought, all right, because we're going to get a lot of data. I think the, on average, we get around 10 to 15,000 images per day on the validation oh, wow. uh, platform. So you can think, right? So 10 to 15,000 images per day, 10 to 15,000 features. Let's store them in, in S3. Mm-hmm. So we store them in S3. And then we have a catalog in, in a NoSQL database, mm-hmm. which is DynamoDB in, in Amazon Web Services. Mm-hmm. Everything was fine. The data is storing. It's increasing the numbers. Everything looks to be wonderful until the day we want to query the data for the first time. <laughs> Let's see how the querying works. Well, it turns out that S3 is not the ideal scenario when you want to query a lot of small files mm-hmm. because there is, uh, and I'm not an expert in this sort of infrastructure things, but uh, there's all of these handshake things mm-hmm. that come between requests and getting the data. That was taking longer than actually fetching the data itself. And because there's a lot of... Why was the querying against S3 and not the Dynamo? Well, the Dynamo was a catalog. So in, in the Dynamo, you would be like, okay, this is the feature path on S3, and this is the label. Mm-hmm. So you just need to get the data from S3 because that's, on in our eyes, you know, it's where data is supposed to be stored. It's in right. a bucket rather than a, a table. So the problem but that yeah. you ran into was just the latency for requesting a single file in S3 when your bucket had a lot of files? Yeah, exactly. And also requesting a big data set or, uh, you know, a big feature data set, right? Because I guess for a couple of hundreds ah, right. of features, doesn't matter. But um, I think that one of my colleagues did the calculation, right? So it was, I think, 40 milliseconds per feature. And I'm not exactly sure of the number now, but um, okay. what we learned is that, well, we probably need to look into something else. So what we did is migrate the data itself as well to DynamoDB so mm. that the catalog, because, I mean, the feature can also be converted to a bytes array. So then the bytes array can also be stored as mm-hmm. yeah, as NoSQL entry, right? So by moving the data into the catalog itself, what we managed to do is that the data now is fetched uh, 16 milliseconds per, per feature, which is, you know, halving the time. Mm-hmm. And that had actually proved to be very efficient. Actually. So, mm-hmm. Is the, the data community there at Lego, you know, is everyone kind of full stack or do you have your more traditional data scientists and then you know folks that are more ML engineers how does the what's kind of the range of skill sets or culture there in terms of full stackness if that's a thing <laughs> full stackness yeah. we are very happy we have a full stack developer in our team because he's a, a mastermind in doing our front end tool mm-hmm. before we had him our, I think our front end app Maybe something out of university, you could say. <laughs> but so we are split, actually. So we have, like myself, so we have uh, machine learning slash data engineers, you could mm-hmm. say, right? 
we also have the more uh, standard data scientists as well. And then we have data management folks okay. and platform people. Mm-hmm. So the ones that are helping with the, the more standard infrastructure, like uh, setting us the account, the, the security, and, and all of the yeah, basic things that you need when you are an enter- enterprise company. Mm-hmm. Got it. Got it. Interesting. We haven't talked in detail about the engagement tool. Beyond the, the overview you provided, what were what were some of the interesting challenges you ran into in developing that tool? Yeah, there's also been a, a couple, right? Because when you come out fresh from university, right, you think uh, data sets are beautiful and clean and... <laughs> You know, I, I think that's what a lot of people think, right? And because when you read research papers, the data is just beautiful, right? Yeah. And you have, I don't know, 16 GPUs and <laughs> all the money in the world, apparently. <laughs> well, that's not our case, even though it also goes well, uh, I guess, monetarily speaking, with labor. But um, I think one of the... So the, the main issue, this this all started... So the, the whole idea for this engagement started also maybe two, two and a half, three years ago. Okay. And their initial idea was that we would get the data to then train only image. So we started going with images to train a, an image classifier that could recognize the image. Mm-hmm. Then the constraint was we want this algorithm to be on device. So what we did is we went for the smallest network known, which is, well, at the time was MobileNet, the two, I guess. And that's three, five megabytes. And that was too big for them. Mm. So, so then we had a problem because it's like, well, we, we can try to go down, we can try to minimize, we can try to reduce weights between layers, mm-hmm. we can try to all of these sort of optimizations, but um, the results were already a bit clumsy. So, you know, you maybe had a Jurassic World built and I could recognize it as Star Wars. So it, it, it was far from idea and actually the, the idea of the project stopped there until a couple of Months after, somebody said, well, why don't we try to do this theme detection for actually interacting with the customers or with the users? Okay. Um, because then they said, well, you have room to do the network you want. We don't really care because it's just going to run in the cloud and it's going to run after the fact, right? So it's going to run at some point in the day to just you know, get the themes and send some likes and comments, right? And that went very fine. I think we started with uh, five themes, which is the top five categories also from, from the application. And probably the biggest issue there, again, was the data quality, right? So you can think of our application, like the Lego Life app, as Instagram, right? Mm-hmm. So when you're a user, you take a picture of your Lego build, you will write a, a title and a description, saying, you know, this is my cool creation, this is a Star Wars, if I And you can also then add uh, tags, hashtags, like you know, on Instagram. So those hashtags could be, you know, hashtag Star Wars, hashtag uh, a lot of other things. So because this data is available in the social media's backend, in this sort of, you know, you could say clumsy labeling, we said, all right, well, we could try maybe running the first iteration, trying to crawl all of this data with some specific themes and maybe also even keywords we know are used for specific themes, right? So let's say, okay, if a user has published a Star Wars image Mm -hmm. and says, this is Chihuahua, I know Chihuahua is a Star Wars uh, minifigure. Well, 
I can probably make it in my data set saying it's Star Wars. Mm-hmm. So that's how we collected data the first time for five classes, and it worked wonderfully well. There were also a lot of misclassifications, but that was also expected from us. Sure. And we tried to clean, so we tried to, I think we did a couple of iterations on the keywords and the hashtags we used as well, because you could think if you said uh, spaceship, spaceship could be Star Wars, but it could also be Ninjago, could also be City. There's a lot of different spaceships. That's the problem at label, right? That imagination is the limit, right? So it's not the real world, unfortunately, or fortunately. Mm-hmm. It makes it a bit more fun. Yeah. But yeah, so then we got the data. The first model with five classes worked. It was accepted by the, the business side. And after that happened, then we extended to 10, no, nine classes. And then now we're up to 13 classes. And I think the latest uh, issues we've been having, or not issues, but uh, the latest challenges we had to overcome was growing to 13 classes. Now we have a three terabyte data set of images, which you might think, well, it's not that much. You know, there's like imaging has 15 million images, I guess. Mm-hmm. It's, quite a, it's quite a bunch when it's the first time we work with uh, such a big data set for a, a production-ready solution, right? And, and using SageMaker, we also learned a lot of SageMaker because we don't have on, on-premise GPUs. Mm-hmm. So, well, I have it here, but I, I have it for, for gaming on my free time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we also had to, to do some learning on how to utilize SageMaker the best possible. And to be fair, that also was very helpful when we also got support from them, from the enterprise side. Because then, yeah, so we were using SageMaker notebooks, which is just a full-on uh, Jupyter notebook. Right. It turns out, that even though you can choose a GPU instance for the notebook, it is not the recommended scenario. The, the training on the GPU has to be done on the SageMaker training. Mm-hmm. The notebook is more just for data prep and data visualization. Yeah. Well, we didn't know that. Until, of course, we, not, we needed to run uh, this 13 class training. Actually, the 9 class training, we did it on the SageMaker notebook. And I think it took a week, maybe, a week and a half. Hmm. Whereas for the 13 class, we then got these estimators running on the training jobs, and that took, I think, half a week. So <laughs> more data, less time. Yeah. It, was a, it was a good trade-off, I think. Got it, got it. Very cool, very cool. What are the, kind of what's next at LEGO with ML? What are you excited about or looking forward to? I think it's a very open question, right? Because again, so we are a company that makes a lot of, I guess, out of the ordinary things, right? Mm-hmm. And one of the projects, for example, we've been looking at is is the is a taxonomy list, right? So let's say how many cars we have, how many motorbikes, how many dogs, how many cats we have at Lego, right? And you could say, well, we are Lego, we own all of our data, we know what we have, uh, and that's true. But what is, well, who is telling me that tomorrow there's not going to be a, a unicorn with a fish legs? Right. right? <laughs> so this makes this taxonomy a bit complicated, right? Because how do you evolve an algorithm or a set of algorithms that can get a new class that has never seen before? It does not look like anything, right? Because you can have a fish and a unicorn, but if they are combined, who is the winner? How do you make sure that your algorithm can learn the new class coming. And it's something we're looking into. And I think it's hopefully coming next year. It requires a lot of prep work, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. 
but there's also a couple of other things. So we're also trying to to upgrade some of the AFOL, which is AFOL is an adult fan of labor. So all of these uh, adult-oriented experiences, we're also trying to put on a bit more spice to them for making it also exciting for the adults to use. Okay. Saying, oh, you can have your this specific application here. Can you recognize what you're building? Things like that. Right? So trying to interact with the users as well. Very cool. But it um, it's, it's complicated, I think, right? Because you can have very big dreams, but it's always the, it's always bureaucratic, right? Mm-hmm. And it's always about the data, right? It's like, well, sure, you can ask me to to classify all of the red Lego bricks you have, but I, I need to know what a Lego brick is first, right? And what is red? Right. Very good. Very good. Well, Francesc, thanks so much for joining us. It was great learning about your projects and especially how you've built out the platform and infrastructure to support them at Lego. Thanks again for, for having me. And uh, I guess maybe one last uh, learning. You don't need to go Kubernetes. No? You can always go serverless. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much. Yes, thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.